In his book, Defiant Grace, Dane Ortland calls Christianity the unreligion because it goes against human religious instincts, which is basically about doing religious things. He notes this. He says, the ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by um, subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to, to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations, that is, doing the right things. And then he goes on and says this, only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. He says, Christianity is the unreligion because it, it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Now, that may seem like a bit oversimplification for some of those worldviews, but it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Christianity is about bringing your life to Jesus. It's about bringing all of your needs to Jesus. It's about coming to him for life. It's about coming to him for salvation. It's about coming to him for help and for strength and for our daily needs because he is the provider of life. My question for us is, what are your needs today? What is it that you need today? Today we come to John chapter 6 and we find uh, Jesus having a training day with the 12. He has some important things that he wants his disciples to know. I think nearly all of those three years that Jesus had were training days. But this is really focused. Uh, I'm going to read uh, John uh, chapter 6, uh, the, the first 15 verses to get us started. So uh, it's not going to be on the screen, but you can listen or you can find it on your smartphone. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already knew what he had in mind and what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, 
have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a, a mountain by himself. And so that's where we begin today. And we find that the context of this is uh, the first four verses of John chapter 6. And we begin with the place in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Actually, the Sea of Galilee had many names in the ancient world. Called the Sea of Chenereth in, in uh, the Old Testament. Called the Sea, sea of Genereset called uh, the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was a town on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was actually a pretty new town named after uh, a Roman emperor named Tiberius. And um, so the Romans like to call it the Sea of Tiberius. And so John, the writer, once maybe a lot of people don't know the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you're a Roman and you don't know. And so John wants a broad audience to know. So this takes place sometime after chapter 5, maybe six months. There's a time lag between uh, where we were last week and, and this week. Um, remember in John 5, Jesus had healed an invalid, uh, a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and it was on the Sabbath day, and that created a fury among the religious leaders. And Jesus stood up and defended himself as to why he was healing on the Sabbath. He was doing the work of the Father, and the Father was working on the Sabbath, and that's just what Jesus was doing. He was doing good. Um, so J Jesus is traveling by boat across the Sea of Galilee from the west side to the east side. Um, and so um, we have a map, of course, and um, that's pretty small up there at the top, isn't it? That's the Sea of Galilee. And um, we have Cana on the left. We have Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And then we have Capernaum. Um, and Capernaum is going to be uh, in our story in a, in, in a little bit. The situation in verses 2 and 3, the, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he uh, had performed by healing the sick. So this is going to be the height of Jesus' public ministry. He's really not going to get any more popular than this. But this has now been going on for two years. Now, John doesn't tell us everything that happened in the life of Jesus in those first five chapters. John handpicks what he wants his audience to know. Why? So that people might believe. Matthew and Mark and Luke have a lot of different information that John doesn't include. And so um, this is, Jesus has become extremely popular because of the signs, that is those miracles 
Signs point to something, and here they point to the message and the messenger and to get people's attention. Uh, God's people from the Old Testament were prepared for this. They were prepared that one day, uh, when, when God does something new and different, he, he often sends messengers, and there's often signs that accompany miracles, and that happened in the Old Testament, and Jesus' ministry is just covered with miracles to point people, especially the nation Israel, to uh, what God was doing. And so Jesus did one of those uh, things that he often did. Verse 3, he went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. In the, in the midst of his busy life, this is the course that Jesus will take. He will slip away. He will break away from the busyness uh, to find time for reflection, to regroup, to um, connect with his Father so that he might be re-energized to do what the Father had him to do. Uh, by the way, this still works. Follow Jesus, it's still good to slip away and make time for the Father. Verse 4, the Jewish Passover was near, and uh, this is always significant to mark out what's happening in the time of, in, in history. Uh, the Jewish Passover was near. It's the spring of the year. That's what is included in this time, this, this Passover time. And there's going to be many Jewish pilgrims on the road headed toward Jerusalem. And so some of those people are coming in from outside of the land of Israel. They're coming in from the Roman Empire because they're going to go to Jerusalem because of the Passover. And not only that, the people all over Israel are beginning to move. And um, along the way, they're hearing about this special person who's performing miracles. And Jesus is getting a lot of attention. And they're hearing about people being healed. And so people are trying to find him uh, whether it's the first time they've experienced being around him or, or whether they have followed him many times and, and seen him uh, perform miracles. Now, the Passover is an important backdrop to the events of John chapter 6. The Passover festival is focused on God delivering his people out of Egypt and how God used Moses as a, as a great leader how God used him to perform many miracles and, and, and uh, that got Pharaoh's attention. And eventually, Pharaoh said, okay, go. And then uh, God led uh, his people out into the wilderness, I think, to test them. They had more lessons to learn. And what happened when, when they were in the wilderness? You'll be reminded of that in just a little bit. And so um, now we start with uh, our first miracle. And it's a test about resources. And by the way, the Passover celebrates what happened 1,500 years earlier. God's people still celebrate it um, in Israel. A test about resources, verses 5 through 15. Assessing the needs, we, we start with that. This is a training technique of Jesus to have a test. 
And we see the need for food, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now he's saying, Philip, I have a question for you. Where are we going to buy bread? And Philip says, what? I didn't sign up to be waitstaff. This is not in my job description. Well, he didn't actually say that. He probably felt that way. Um, this is not about fishing for men. It, you know, that's how it appears anyway. In this verse 6, we see uh, the need that Jesus sees for spiritual development. And this is uh, his training opportunity. Verse 6, he, he asks this only to test them. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. He's got a plan. Jesus always has a plan. Uh, he wanted to test Philip as well as the other disciples. And there's something in this for us. Um, so he, he puts Philip in this predicament. We don't like to be in predicaments, but Philip got put in this predicament to answer this question that really doesn't have an answer, uh, at least humanly. But so uh, Philip assesses the resources that are available in verses uh, 7 through 9. Verse 7, Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In fact, closer to eight months wages to buy enough food to feed everybody there. And it really depends on how many people are there because it's possibly a really large number. And uh, some translations say 200 denarii. And what that would be would be 200 um, days wages for one person. And, uh, you know, if you want to calculate that real quick, well, at $10 an hour, and I don't know what's uh, day laborers. Uh, I mean, I think everybody should be paid more than $10 an hour. But uh, I know the minimum wage is $750, so I'm being really generous. $10 an hour, that would make... That would take $16,000 to feed every single person there. Um, maybe. I'm just throwing it. That's, who's carrying that kind of cash in the discipleship, in Jesus' group? Um, at nobody. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. This is a poor man's lunch. Barley loaves were the most economical thing they could buy and call it bread. And he says, but how far is it going to go? Well, it's not going to go far. There's a problem, there's a need, but this is going to be a training day for the disciples. Jesus has something he wants them to learn. And so verses uh, 10 through 13, we got to watch them in learning a lesson. The plan in verse 10 Jesus says, well, have the people sit down. Now, there was plenty of grass in that place. That's nice. You know, it's the spring of the year, and it's good that there's a decent place to sit. So they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. I know this is going to bother some of you, but they counted the men. That was the ancient practice. It wasn't just a Jewish practice. Um, possible heads of households, but... The point of this is, in counting the 5,000 men and, and uh, the way it's written, we know there's a whole lot more people there than 5,000. 
Children, wives, sisters, good number. 10,000 people, 15,000 people, 20,000 people, 25, I don't know. It's a large number. I don't know if $10 an hour is going to cover it, by the way. Um, and then um, we have the multiplication factor in verse 11. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks. Uh, so the resources that they have, these five loaves and two fishes, uh, are brought uh, to Jesus. They're, they're placed in his hands. Now think about the boy who gave that up. He gave it all to Jesus. I don't know if there were other people who had food in there. doesn't say. They, they wouldn't give it up. They wouldn't let Jesus have their food. So Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. So there's a couple things we can learn real quick here about taking our resources and putting them into the hands of Jesus. It's one of the best things you can ever do. I suggest it's the only thing you should ever do. Take what you have and put it in the hands of Jesus. Make it available to him for his use. But Jesus gave thanks. Interesting, isn't it? He's God, and he thanks the Father. And he's giving us a model to give thanks, even when it's just a small amount. When you sit down for lunch today, will you give thanks? Who provided it for you? Will you give thanks? So he gave thanks. He took the loaves. He gave thanks. And then distributed to those who were seated, those sitting on the ground. And Jesus had them sit down because this is crowd control. Um, you got 5,000 hungry men. Um, and somebody points to the food. I don't know how patient they would be. But Jesus brings order. And um, like Matthew suggests that they, they sit down in groups. And that's uh, one of the reasons how they got counted. And um, so they sit down in groups. And then um, Matthew also tells us that Jesus gave the food to the disciples. And he just kept giving food to the disciples. He distributed it to the disciples. Now the disciples have to go to the people. And the disciples have to hand this out. By the way, how long do you think that would take to go back to Jesus, get the food, walk over to the people, make sure it's all handed out, and then go back to Jesus and get some more food? Twelve disciples getting food from Jesus, feeding a pretty large group. And they're not all seated in one spot. Um, he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. He just kept distributing the bread and the fish. Um, now the disciples get this hands-on lesson. They're probably exhausted by the time the last person gets the food and they get to eat too. And uh, they're never going to forget this. And by the way, there are two miracles that are mentioned 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are only two that are mentioned in all four. One of them is the feeding of the 5,000. The other is the resurrection. Um, pretty unique situation. Um, so the disciples now have a lesson to learn. Verse 12, when they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, so think about this, all of them had enough. All of them were satisfied. He says, gather the pieces left over. Let nothing be wasted. Well, this is really hard for the American church. You know, we have plenty. We don't like things that aren't the best. And so sometimes maybe we waste too much. But in this situation, Jesus says, let, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered uh, uh, they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Um, there was an abundance. There was enough so that the disciples would have each have a basket full of food. And these, uh, the word for basket means large basket. All 12 have enough, more than enough. And it came from Jesus. When resources were placed into the hand of Jesus, and Jesus wants his disciples to learn that. Uh, Jesus supplies our needs, all of them, and we can count on him. So we are to place our resources into the hands of Jesus. Is this an easy one for you? To think about all that you have and submit them to him, offer them to him. And let him use them as, as he, as Lord, would like to. Whether it's your money, your bank accounts, your investments, your, your home. How about your family? Would you put your family in the hands of Jesus? That takes trust. Um, and... Uh, I want to just remind us about that model Jesus gave. He gave thanks. We can thank God for everything, and we should. Whether it's our paycheck, you know, we have this tendency, you know, we American rugged individualists have a tendency to think, well, I did it, I earned it, I deserve it kind of thing. And yet we wouldn't have any of this. Go back and read Deuteronomy 8. We wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't God who made it possible. Um, verses 14 and 15, we have a crowd situation with Jesus' growing population. The crowd has been fed. Uh, they now have their own ideas on what Jesus should be doing. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. 
must be him. And I mentioned earlier about this is the time of the Passover. John wants us to know that. Now think about this. When people go to Passover, they are reflecting on the events of the Passover. Moses is central to all of that. He was the one who delivered them out of Egypt. He is the one who led them 40 years in the wilderness. And guess what happened in the wilderness? God provided manna from heaven to feed his people day after day after day after day. Wouldn't that be cool if Jesus did that for us? He's probably the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. God will raise up one like me who will speak for me. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, we've looked at that. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. God's going to raise up somebody who's going to speak for God, and God says, listen to him. And so people are starting to make that connection. This, this is the prophet. But they're not so much interested in what God has in mind. They're a little more interested in making this work for them. They're thinking about what they want. They're thinking about what they need, yes. But they want somebody like Moses who led them out of Egypt. They want somebody like a new Messiah who will kill the Romans and make them go home if, they, if, they, if they're not dead. They want to be delivered from the Romans. So let's go get Jesus, let's make him king, and let's see what he'll do for us. Uh, but Jesus uh, is not interested, and so he makes a strategic retreat in verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There, there's that pattern. He withdraws, he wants to get alone, to be with God, and he's not about to let a group of people manipulate his plan to do the Father's will. Jesus could read the crowd. He knew what was in humanity. John chapter 2, verse 25. He understood the crowd has their own purpose for him. They would install him as their leader so, they, so he could feed them, so that he, he would be like Moses in their mind. But they have a purpose for him. It's not about him having a purpose for them, they know what they want him to be doing. I wonder if we can learn from that. Are there times that we want Jesus to do our agenda? You know, we, we think about our needs, and sometimes they're more than needs, and we have our own agenda for what Jesus should be doing, and we just keep watching to see if we can check off, is he doing what I think is important. Um, we often bring our needs and our wants to Jesus. And, you know, it's not wrong to have a want and ask Jesus for it. But um, one of the dangers is it's so easy just to focus on our wants. And then we can get so disappointed because he doesn't give us what we want. And we don't really care much about the needs because we live in a land of plenty. Jesus retreated from them. I wonder, does Jesus ever need to retreat from us? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, he, he is present. 
God is in you. But does he enjoy, does he want to be close to you when it's about us and not about what he wants to do? Um, so the next test uh, for his followers comes in verses 16 through 24, and it's a test about navigating storms, a test about navigating storms. The situation, verse 16 when the evening came, so it's the same day, his disciples went down to the lake. That's really what it is. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. It's about seven miles wide at the widest, and it's about 12 or 13 miles long at the longest. It's not really a big sea. Um, his disciples went down to the lake, so they were up away. Do you remember the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below the sea level? It's a pretty low point on earth. And then on the, um, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee are hills, and then it's about 2,000 feet above sea level. And then on the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee is um, a little bit higher elevation, about 3,000 uh, feet above sea level. So you got this little lake that's like a cup. And what happens on the lake? Well, the Cold air comes in off the Mediterranean Sea and goes over those hills on the west side and then dips down toward the lake. And then the warm air comes off of the wilderness on the, on the uh, east side and dips down into the lake, and, and those winds collide. And um, I don't know if the map is going to help us at this point. Clear up there at the top. West side, east side, and the wind collides. See, it's a pretty small area. Um, verse 18, the rough water, a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And it's because of what happens, and it's very common to have the waters stirred up in such a short time uh, with this, the warm air and the cool air colliding. The encounter comes in verse 19 when they had rowed about three or four miles. So they uh, have been on the east side and now they are headed back toward the center of the lake. So they're about halfway, three to four miles. Um, it's very dark. They see a man walking on the water. They had rowed three or four miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. Um, this is not normal for fishermen. There's at least four or five of them in the boats. Well, not all of them are fishermen. Um, it's not normal to see somebody walking on the water. And uh, we learn from Matthew that they think it's a ghost. But instead of being amazed by Jesus walking on the water, they are frightened. And then Jesus identifies himself. Now Matthew records that this is also the time that Peter will make his attempt to be in the water show, and he will attempt to walk on water and not do well. Now John's not very impressed with Peter, and he doesn't even include that. But it's the same time. Um, this is a training day for his disciples and for us. And we see some lessons in verses 20 and 21. Um, but he said to them, it is I, 
Don't be afraid. It is Jesus. When he says, it is I, he's in a, using the, the form that would be the same form as God said in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. And that's what Jesus is saying. It, it's I am is here. And um, he wants them to trust him, not to be afraid. It is I. It's easy to do, right? But Jesus wasn't just teaching them about weather. He's teaching them about storms, bigger storms, storms of life. Uh, Jim Cantori, uh, Cantori is a weather uh, channel guy who travels to those uh, scary areas to report the weather on the Weather Channel TV. He goes to places of extreme weather all over uh, our country and sometimes in the world. And he's been called the rock star of meteorologists because of his work with hurricanes and tornadoes. Cantori uh, used the storms, uh, is used to this. this is, he just gets used to it. And he stands there and the, you know the camera and everything's blowing. And he just, this is his job. He also has two children with a fragile X syndrome. It's a genetic disorder that can lead to autism-type uh, symptoms. Cantori once said, his children face the real issues in life much harder than he has ever faced. And Here's what he writes. He says, they face the real storms of life. He says, what my children have to deal with on a daily basis is by far more difficult than anything I will come into contact with. That was in the USA today. Jesus um, told his disciples, it's me, I'm here. And, and we have that promise that he is always with us. He is here. Um, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We have that promise. Is that enough? To have Jesus? For all eternity. Next, next verse. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is my helper. That's Jesus. And he is here to help. It's exactly what he did in these lessons. In verse uh, 21, we see uh, what happens next as they arrive at their destination. Verse 21, then they, then they were willing to take him into the boat. That's good. They welcomed him in, let him in so he doesn't have to walk on the water. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They were three and a half miles out in the, the lake. And immediately they got to where they wanted to go. 
because of Jesus. Um, and that's a good application for us. Now, now, Jesus did it supernaturally on that occasion. But when we uh, walk with Jesus, he will get us to where he wants us to go. He will accomplish those things he wants us to accomplish. He will do the things that he wants us to do through us. Verses 22 through 24, we come to the end of our, our, our passage today, the search for Jesus. Verse 22, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, now they, they had been on the east side of the lake, realized that only one boat had been there, the one that Jesus' disciples came in, and that Jesus had not entered, they must have had some eyewitnesses, Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. Jesus had asked the disciples, by the way, Matthew tells us, that he wanted them to go ahead of him. That's why he, he dismissed the crowd, and then he went up into the, to the mountain to pray. And the disciples were headed out, headed toward Capernaum ahead of him. And so now the crowd begins to figure this out. Verse 23, then boats from Tiberias landed, that's the opposite side. That's from the west side of the lake. They landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread. So they got to the east side, right to the spot where Jesus and the disciples had been. And then verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. That's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So this is where we're going to find Jesus next week. In Capernaum. That's where the crowd's going to be. So I guess we'll have to come back to see that part. Um, it's a great, you know, here are these people are searching for Jesus. You know, people are searching for Jesus today. They, they're searching in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different areas. Some of them don't know they're searching for Jesus. He's the only answer in most of you know the answer personally, have experienced it. And that's why we get to share it with others. And that's how it gets communicated is through us. So Jesus sought to prepare his disciples uh, for navigating storms of life. Later, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this, I've told you these things, same writer, John, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus continued to instruct his disciples that life isn't going to be a piece of cake. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. That's the norm. We're going to face difficult circumstances in life as followers of Jesus, even when we're walking closely with him. Jesus has overcome the world, and we have a relationship with him. We've heard this morning about Mike and Angie's terrible storm of life. Some of you 
have, are facing some difficult storms in your life right now. I even think of, think of the Belikov family who is coming. Think about what they've been through in their country, what their countrymen are going through. They have had a storm. I don't know that they know Jesus. We can have an opportunity to connect with them. But some of you are facing some difficult things. Some of you are facing addiction issues. Some of you are dealing with uh, health issues for yourself or maybe some of your family or some of your friends. Some of you are facing marriage stress, difficult times, rough seas. Some of you have kids that may, may be far from God and it's it's really discouraging. Um, some of you have kids that are just having difficulty with behavioral issues. Uh, some people here might be trying to navigate depression or anxiety. Some are facing financial challenges. There are a lot of storms in life, and it just comes with Living in this world. Walking with Christ doesn't make them worse. It's the way to get through them. Um, and Jesus wants to, to walk alongside each one of us and to meet our needs, uh, no matter what the storm may be. Some of you know the name uh, Horatio Spafford. Uh, he was a successful businessman and an attorney uh, in Chicago. He lost his four-year-old son um, to, uh, to, to a health issue, to fever. He invested heavily in the real estate market in Chicago, but the Chicago fire of 1871 just wiped him out totally financially. In 1873... He sought to help his good friend D.L. Moody in Europe in, in, uh, with evangelistic crusades. So he planned a vacation with the purpose with his four daughters and his wife. They were going to go uh, first to England. And then um, just before they were to travel, uh, this business thing that uh, was kind of a crisis thing required him to stay behind just a little bit longer. And so he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead uh, to England. Um, the ship and, well, that it was carrying his family was uh, headed east, and uh, it was in the middle of the night, and it collided with another ship. And the ship sank in 12 minutes. 223 on board lost their lives. Spafford received a telegram in Chicago from his wife, and she said, saved alone. What does that mean? Saved alone. It means his four, daughter, four daughters didn't make it. That was devastating news. Devastating so Spafford boarded a ship to go to England. 
And, you know, a lot of you know the story. As they crossed the Atlantic, they reached that point. The captain uh, of the ship um, called attention for Horatio to know this is the location where that ship went down. And Spafford is on board in his, his pain and his uh, sorrow. He had a God moment right then. And um, he sensed the presence of God with him. It didn't change his circumstances, but it changed him. And it gave him hope. And he penned a song that has become a classic. And we're going to sing it in just, just a little bit. And so as we come to the close, I, I want to just pause. And I want us to go before God right now and just uh, reflect a little bit. Let's just bow before God in prayer. And can we thank God for what he's teaching us? Whatever that may be whether we're going through a storm. Not everybody may be going through a storm. I imagine you will. And can you remind yourself right now of God's constant, constant presence in your life? Jesus is with you. Can you lean on Him? Trust Him? to lead you through difficulty? Can you forsake trying to do it on your own power? Can you place all of your resources into God's hands? Could you put your life into God's hands? Can you put your money and stuff into God's hand? Can you put your family into God's hand? Can you commit to trusting him one day at a time? Because Jesus told us each day has enough trouble of its own. Can you commit yourself to being a lifelong learner about God's lessons? Can you commit yourself to being a lifelong follower of Jesus and actually follow? God, I just want to thank you for what you're teaching us. May you uh, have the freedom to work in our lives. May we be people who yield to you. May you um, fill us with your spirit. God, give us the strength and courage to face the difficult situations that we find ourselves in. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.
That is a powerful song after losing all of your kids. Spiritual temperature check. Is it well with your soul today? Is it well? You know, God has designed the church to be a community, a family. And when you're going through one of those storms, who encourages you? Who prays for you? And I just want to encourage you to reach out to somebody. Um, if you need prayer, reach out. Share what, what you're facing. If you need encouragement, reach out to somebody. You just be honest. That's, that's why God has designed his church, that we love each other and care for each other and help each other. We'll be in John 6 next week. Thanks for being here today. God bless you all. We're dismissed.